Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. Tasha Anderson here, your host today. I am here with my friend, Zach Weigel. He is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Gamers Outreach Foundation, right? That's a full title. And we're going to hear a little bit more about his story today. Zach, you have such an amazing, remarkable story in such kind of a short period of time, starting in such grassroots uh, way. And I'd love to you know, get into that. But first, I want to thank you for joining us today and for taking time out of your schedule to be part of this conversation and to share some of the lessons that you've learned and all of the things that you've accumulated in terms of knowledge over the years uh, to share with the people that are listening. So thank you for that. Hey, of course, Tasha. Thanks for the invitation and really appreciate being here. Awesome. So one of the things that struck me right away with working with Gamers Outreach is your donor base. You are not a typical nonprofit, which I love. That's the whole point of this podcast. Let's talk about nonprofits that are not like everyone else, that push the needle, that do things a little unorthodox, um, that just kind of throw the status quo right out the window. And if there's a definition for Gamers Outreach and for you as a leader, Zach, I think you really fit that bill, which is awesome. So tell us a little bit more about what makes your nonprofit atypical with respect to your donors? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I take it as a compliment. Um, to be honest, Absolutely. we didn't hesitate to call ourselves a nonprofit just because I feel like the term is a bit of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ideally should be insanely profitable. Uh, the yeah. of course, is that we're taking our surplus and we're investing it into growing our programs and growing the impact of our organization. Mm-hmm. A lot of what makes us unique, I think, comes from our identity as a video game brand, at least we see ourselves as a video game brand that happens to work in the healthcare environment. So Mm -hmm. Gamers Outreach is an organization that helps make entertainment readily available in hospitals. And we do that through video games. And there are a number of reasons why, but very simply, our belief is that video games make play possible at scale. So right now in pediatric hospitals around the country, you have these situations where kids and families are stuck for long periods of time. Uh, Often it's difficult to provide them with activities. And for a number of reasons, many hospitals haven't been able to make investments in providing tech or uh, some of the consumer entertainment products we enjoy in our daily lives in the Mm -hmm. hospital environment. So our whole organization is focused on providing those tools. Um, And we get a lot of support from the gaming community. And Mm -hmm. so to your question about our donor base, I think video game enthusiasts just sort of easily understand the value of what we do. I mean, I grew up myself playing video games. I'm now an adult. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the hospital. I want to be playing video games. So I can definitely tell you if I was in the hospital, uh, I would even more so want to be spending time playing games. Uh, So I think as a byproduct of the work we do and sort of the message of our organization, it just so happens that a lot of our support comes from people who who get it. And those people happen to be video game enthusiasts. And by the nature of video games, so many of us are hyper-connected through the internet. There are all Mm -hmm. these like, you know, individual communities of gamers that exist online. And we're all, they're almost like these online hubs where we kind of aggregate. Twitter is a hub, Reddit is a hub. And then you've got like your individual uh, like gaming communities that we all sort of Uh, are a part of. And we essentially rally all those together to generate the revenue that supports our programs in these hospitals nationwide. 
I love that. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of online marketing and, and using all these different platforms. So I've seen so many nonprofits utilize social media and online marketing, but largely just kind of a general awareness. Hey, here's a little picture of the kind of what we do and a little bit of message. But Gamers has done an amazing job in engaging this audience and, and not so much of just, hey, this is what we do. Tell your friends what a cool situation this is. But more importantly, you generate a lot of revenue through that engagement, right? Because that's how you actually get your donations. And I think that is really unique that Gamers does that. Um, I had a client once say, uh, when I was talking about online you know, presence and all the marketing that they do online, and they said, well, Tasha, you know, that's just for awareness. That doesn't actually raise money. And I thought, but why wouldn't it? Because you had mentioned for all intents and purposes, you could be extraordinarily profitable if you were a for-profit, right? And the way that you've leveraged, but by nature of being on an online presence and how you've been able to find donors and engage those donors and grow your donor base and therefore your annual budgets by way of having this online presence. So tell us a little bit more about how you, how you do that or just how that even got started, how that even became a thing. Yeah, you know, that's a question I can answer a handful of different ways. Um, <laughs> just to hear the comment that we think of it as a source of awareness versus revenue. Um, I understand where that person's coming from. To me, in order to take advantage of the opportunity that is, let's just say social media, right? Um, you, it does help to have a funnel in place. So doing a bit of work ahead of time to like have this end goal of, look, when we're reaching out to people in the world, the goal is to help them become supporters. And you know, maybe we've got a monthly donor program that we're encouraging people to sign up for. Maybe we want people to give gifts on a one-time basis. Um, and the idea is that everything kind of funnels into there, right? Like if I run a Twitter account for a nonprofit, um, the goal is to be sharing our work, of course, but also helping people understand hey, here's how your contributions are making an impact. Mm -hmm. Here's how you can help us solve the problem of what's going on, like come into this world and be a part of it. So I think social media is an incredible tool to tell that story. It's, it's fair to recognize as well, like, like any marketing mix, social media sort of reaches a segment of the greater population, right? Like Mm -hmm. The Twitterverse, especially, I think we saw it in, during the political season, um, mm -hmm. especially like the Twitterverse is very much an echo chamber in some ways. Um, and that's true for Facebook as well, sort of true for Instagram. Every platform kind of has its like unique nuances to, you know, has its nuances to understand um, in terms of like how best to interact with the community there. Um, mm -hmm. For us as gamers, and, and again, it just requires a bit of understanding about the video game world. So the video game community is the video game community basically relies on the internet to communicate. So mm -hmm. whether it's through the games we play and even years ago, that started out as just online forums, right? People were trying to right. find ways to aggregate. Well, nowadays there's this thing called Twitch and there's this thing mm -hmm. called streaming. And so you have a lot of video game enthusiasts who enjoy playing games and they're now broadcasting themselves playing those games online. And so um, one of the things that's kind of unique to our organization is we organically have a lot of relationships with video game enthusiasts and they're supportive of our work. And some of them happen to have pretty large audiences on the internet. Mm -hmm. So when we work with those people, they'll reach out to their communities and they'll say, hey, I'm a fan of gamers outreach. I'm trying to build gaming carts for kids in hospitals. I'm trying to provide devices to my local community. I'd like your help to do that. And then their mm -hmm. fans are donating to them directly. So 
um, it's interesting for us. I mean, we think of it as our social media is an opportunity to share the impact of what's happening within our org. And we want to do that in a way that's fun. I mean, we, we think of we're literally an organization that brings entertainment into hospitals. Like we should be having right. fun every single day is my personal philosophy. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring joy and happiness into people's lives. And we're trying to give them a sense of connection. Um, and so we want to try to take that personality in our social as well. So to be honest with you, I'm glad I, I take that as a compliment because there's, there's so much more we could be doing. And our team is yeah. just sort of limited by right now by bandwidth and personnel. Um, this year, we're actually making some investments in um, like better media content, like higher quality media content. Um, and interestingly, like we've missed out on a lot of the traditional fundraising mechanisms that some of your listeners probably take advantage of. So there's yeah. kind of reverse where we like did all this sort of organic work. And, but now we're like, oh, wait, you're telling me a lot of nonprofits are funded by grants? Like, wow, yeah. like we've not right. done that yet. So um, yeah, there's so much still for us to explore. Um, but I do think from a, a messaging standpoint, social media is a way to give your brand a personality and express your values in a way that is more conversational. Yeah, I love that. And, and really leveraging the connections um, and the network that you already have and tapping into, you know, like you said, some of the big players within the gaming sphere, tapping into them. And then they're obviously connected with other people and sharing your message through that way. And I think all nonprofits could, could really do that. But it really also, you, you kind of mentioned just the bandwidth and the capacity and, and the skill set for people to understand, okay, how do I actually learn how to do this thing? What should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? How can I do it better? And the truth is these things just change so much. There's so much that you can do. And I know that even with, with my own business, I mean, there's so many things. It's almost overwhelming. All of the things you really could be doing with yeah. different medias um, online. I mean, everything's online now pretty much. Yeah, um, and quickly on that note, I mean, case in point, uh, TikTok, right? I mean, when mm -hmm. TikTok dropped, I, I was at, I literally was at a house party in LA with like a bunch of very famous tech talkers. And I'm not saying that to like name drop or anything, but just that I was unconvinced. I was like, I don't want another social media app on my phone. I mean, I'm 31 now. Right. So like right. grew up when Facebook, I remember when MySpace launched, I remember when Facebook yep. launched, obviously yep. you know, now I've got all of them on my phone and they're like, wow, you're telling me another social media app is coming out. Like I'm going to hold off. Um, mm -hmm. but funny enough, like this year, we're actually chatting with some TikTok. Uh, you know, personalities, some folks who are big on the platform about fundraising for gamers outreach. So, you know, in fairness, like even we are like sometimes slow to adopt the new stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and because again, too, like, I mean, there are so many platforms that emerge. Sometimes they go places, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's relevant for charity, sometimes it's not. Um, you know, even crypto right now is like an emerges sort of this emerging, actually, this is probably somewhat relevant for you. And you're, I'm yeah. sure you're talking to people about it, but uh, we just started accepting like Bitcoin donations through this entity mm -hmm. giving block. Um, so we don't like hold the Bitcoin, but it gets converted automatically. Right. Uh, but you know, it's just one more outlet for people to give. So I think, I think the end takeaway is it's really about our priority is to reach our audience where they are. The more work we have to do for our, the, the more, our, uh, the more work our audience has to do to come to us the less likely we are to get support is the way I think about it. And so if we can that. go to where our community already is or where people already are, we want to reach people where they're at in a way that's relevant to them. Um, so I yeah, I think, I think it just comes down to creativity and having the staff on your team who are knowledgeable to, to do that. So um, that's what I think is so interesting about you all is the, the niche specific donor database. I mean, certainly, you know, we like to say we don't make it difficult for anyone to give us money. So if somebody that wasn't necessarily a gamer that just thought it was really cool for what you do, 
um, maybe physicians, and, and I know you certainly get support from physician offices and things like that, just understanding the value that you, you know, provide to the kids in the hospital. Um, but I think what's really interesting is, you know, many organizations that I know, they have such a broad, I mean, everyone, they're trying to find everyone. And sometimes when you cast your net so wide, that it's really difficult to find, you know, those supporters, right? But what I love about yours is, is you just have such a specific um, group of people that generally support the work that you do and, and in really big ways. And even sometimes I think we get trapped in the scarcity mindset of, um, well, I have to go really broad with my donor base because, you know, how else would I be able to get the funding? And even though your donor base largely is kind of, I mean, certainly gamers fit many different demographics, but the fact that you've gone to a single place where they're, where they can be found and it's had such a tremendous impact for you is, I just think really cool. I, mean, I, I think I would summarize it by saying, I call it like cultural resonance, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are raising money for cancer research. The people who are, I would imagine, most likely going to support that are people who've experienced that themselves. And so that's like a certain demographic of people. Um, and then for us, I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to explain the value of video games in the healthcare space. And you're right, Tasha. I mean, there are pediatricians and uh, physicians who totally see that and they're advocates for us from like a sort of a thought leadership and a knowledge standpoint. Um, but in terms of our supporters, like, as I mentioned, the people who really get that are gamers. Like mm -hmm. if we're talking to somebody who has never played video games in their lives, you know, maybe they're a parent or someone who, you know, their kids play games and they get it, but we're really trying to find the person who really like we know is going to understand what we're doing. Um, and so we lean into that and that's become our identity. And um, and or like I said, organically, it's where we came from anyway. So it's not like a, it's not a forced thing. It's not some sort of like marketing scheme. Uh, it's very genuine. Like we all, I play video games. My dad was a computer science major. Like I grew up like kind of being influenced by that all my life. Um, and our whole team is made up of gamers. So actually today, after we're done with this call, we're all hopping on today's uh, last uh, every, every month we have a game day. So we're all going to be playing video games today. So <laughs> that's um, awesome. yeah, that's part of our identity. So tell me this, you know, it's kind of switching gears a little bit. So you're, you mentioned you're 31. So you're pretty young CEO, right? With a rapidly growing nonprofit, um, gaining even national attention in some ways with the work that you're doing, whether it's, it's your programming or the success of the organization or, or lots of different reasons. Tell me, how has your leadership style changed from when you kind of first got started until what it is now as you've grown? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing I, first off, I'm still learning, uh, learning every uh, every day, and I don't think that's going to ever end. Um, hopefully no. it doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I definitely make plenty of mistakes. Um, my team seems to, uh, um, I'm sure they would have comments too, but <laughs> they, uh, they're still around, so that's good. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think, I first off, the I, I think one big change I've been trying to make in terms of my leadership style has been... Um, being feeling like I need to be doing everything versus delegating things mm -hmm. to my team. And so making that mm -hmm. shift from um, being the person who literally did all the things to being the person who now supports the people who are doing all of the things. Um, gotcha. And that's been uh, transitioning to that and helping my mm -hmm. team understand how to prioritize their time. Um, you know, basically my life has gone from like literally doing all this, that stuff to being on calls all day. Right. So I'm just trying to help mm -hmm. guide the thinking of my team members. Um, so I think that's probably been the biggest evolution so far, mm -hmm. like in a couple of years, especially, um, I like to think mm -hmm. I'm getting better at it, but we still have some work to go. Um, and part of it is also just, 
we've grown very organically, right? Like yeah. some days we're fundraising, some days we're thinking about programs. And so we're kind of sure. in this balancing act. Um, we didn't start from a place where we had a giant endowment fund from the, you know, the get-go and like, boom, right. just run. Um, yeah. we, we have to actively fundraise. So there's definitely been like that balancing act along the way. Um, so now we're finally getting to a place though, where like we are like, you know, we're, we're, we have the resources to bring on new people. I don't want to stretch us too thin because I know what it's like to be at zero. <laughs> I don't want to go right. back there if we don't have to. Um, so I, I think that's probably been the the biggest piece that's been evolving for me lately, um, as well as just general self-awareness. I think another aspect is um, like being a, a coach for my team, um, mm-hmm. especially during the pandemic, right? I mean, it's real easy for any of us to kind of be stuck inside all the time. Um, and my whole team works remotely. So I have to take a few extra steps to ensure that people aren't um, invading each other's sort of personal online space. So, you know, we use chat form, platforms to communicate. All of us have email. I make a very intentional effort um, to not email people at like 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm online and like maybe I've shifted my day around where I'm gonna work in the mm-hmm. evening. Um, I'll try to make sure I'm sending that email later. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I um, love that. so there's some things like that too, that I like try to create space. Intentionally. I'm not perfect at it, but actually last night I accidentally, I, I meant to schedule an email for today and it accidentally went out and I was like, Oh no, I hope, I hope people don't check it. But, um, so yeah, those are a couple of things that, um, you yeah, have been happening lately. Um, I love that. I, I can relate to, I feel like before I was always the problem solver and then shifting to how do I develop my team to become their own problem solvers, right? So you can delegate not just the task, but the responsibility of it, but then also develop them and, and mentor them in a way that, you know, certainly they could start solving some of the own problems because it, it becomes, as you keep growing and growing and growing, it becomes more and more difficult to be the problem solver for, you know, instead of just two people, it's five people. And then before you know it, it's 10 people. And it just keeps growing and, and your capacity to uh, attend to all of those people becomes less and less and less. So I can absolutely relate to that. So speaking of your team, your team is actually pretty small and lean. And now you said that your team is remote, but just to clarify, your team's always been like a virtual team. You all have always kind of generally operated in different spaces, working from home. What hacks do you use since you are kind of a, I mean, certainly a gamer, but I think that you all are also very tech savvy in a lot of ways. So what other hacks do you use to like manage a virtual team or just get it all done considering the fact that you do have such a small team? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is we're super objective oriented. Um, I personally do not care how much time somebody is spending at their desk. Uh, To Mm -hmm. me, being at your desk between the hours of nine to five uh, at least for what we do creatively is totally arbitrary. Um, the way I kind of frame it is like, you know, if I were to hire a logo designer to make a logo or make some sort of piece of graphic artwork for us, um, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, we would have a deadline of some sort, obviously, but if, if the deadline, if the deadline was two weeks away and they were able to complete that logo within an hour, um, it wouldn't matter to me if, if it only took them an hour or if it took them the full two weeks, two weeks. what would matter mm-hmm. would be does that end logo like look how we want it to look, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I take that thinking and apply it to a lot of our other yeah. departments. Like for our development director, I'm like, look, you know, last year we, um, it looks like tentatively we were able to raise somewhere around $3 million. Um, if my, our development director were able to magically generate like a million dollars tomorrow, I would be like, dude, that's pretty awesome. Like you just raise it, yeah. go take the next month off. <laughs> you know, like right, I would, right. I would be super amped about that. So um, the time, you know, 
if, if he's now at the same time, he's spinning his wheels and, you know, after a year is like raising $10,000, like, look, that's a problem, obviously. Like something's not, right. you're not, you're either not spending your time effectively or this like, isn't a really the role for you. Um, and right. our developer is doing great, by the way, just as an example, right? Sure. Um, so the first thing is that we're very objective oriented. So every quarter we sit down and we basically, each of our department heads picks three to five different projects they want to tackle over the course of that quarter. So mm -hmm. I'll say as a, like as executive director, I'll say, all right, um, I want to, you know, this, like my last few projects are, I want to build a new website for Gamers Outreach. And then we have like two other um, programs that are, that have been in development. We're going to be launching this March. And so my sort of mm -hmm. three projects were to like get these things out the door. Um, right. For my development director, he's got a couple projects. Hey man, like, you need to, um, we need to get a better CRM in place. Like that's your project for mm -hmm. the next couple months. Like think about getting those tools in place. So we're very like, we think of it as like building a house. And whenever mm -hmm. we come together, we want to think about, okay, what's the next thing we want to build to like streamline everything we're doing. So mm -hmm. all other, all other tools, all other organization basically is sort of planned out from those objectives. Those um, yeah. If people, I do think I go back and forth about the remote work versus in person. Um, somebody made a comparison the other day to like going to school in person versus doing it at home. And um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I fully agree with that analogy, but I can understand like arguments both ways. Like mm -hmm. I do notice when our team is in person, what we tend to focus on changes a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's just sort of like a natural byproduct of being around people. Like sometimes group things happen. Group think tends to happen for better or worse. Um, or, you know, like water cooler conversations happen. And so in some ways, like right. from a cultural standpoint, that can be really healthy. Uh, but from a productivity standpoint, I can definitely say I feel way more productive when I'm like unbothered because I'm able to kind of go through right. my task list. You know, I think the perfect mix is some, you know, level of both. Like, I think when yeah. we, after this pandemic, we might end up kind of creating some sort of small dedicated office, but having our team come through like you know, once a quarter, once a month to like sit down mm -hmm. together. And Hybrid like, model of some sort. Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, that's just, I think that that objective orientation is like the most important component. Everything else just boils down to a bunch of software tools we use to like stay in touch. So we have a chat platform. Some people like to use Slack. We use this platform called Discord. It's like Slack, mm -hmm. but for gamers. Um, we've got uh, like a CRM called Airtable we use to like keep track of mm -hmm. projects. Um, we use a social media tool called Buffer to help schedule out like social media posts. So we have a whole bunch of just software tools we use to try to scale a lot of the work that otherwise people might have to do manually. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really the key. Sometimes I think a lot of nonprofits get so buried in the day to day that they can't kind of lift themselves out of that and think, is there a way that we can do this easier through the use of software technology or even working? I love that. Kind of more of a quarterly we do the same thing in our company we do kind of a quarterly state of the firm and we revisit you know the last quarter's goals where are we at with that and then let's present the next quarter's goals and then holding ourselves accountable to that um on a pretty regular basis so i love that so last question for you i i get in contact with a lot of people getting ready to start nonprofits and want to start nonprofits as somebody that has done it and done it successfully what advice would you give to a newbie in this space like that's just getting started or wanting to get started yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I think the first thing is it's helpful to, well, let me actually start with this. Um, I think there's a big difference between being a do-gooder and someone who does good. 
And what I mean by that is oftentimes there are plenty of folks who have great intentions, but will sort of uh, force their idea of like what is what it means to solve a problem onto the world, whether that is actually the solution or not. Um, so they're sort of imposing their will basically in an environment where they um, feel that they want to be helpful, but if they're not engaging with the community, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, that effort can go to waste. Mm -hmm. Being someone who does good is to, in my opinion, interact and understand what the problem is and who are the people in the trenches on a day-to-day -day basis that are dealing with this uh, and building the tools and services that are going to reinforce them and help them really solve the problem in a way that is like a compliment to the work that they've done so far. There is definitely such a thing as disruption and innovation and like sometimes you have to start from scratch, but it's helpful to do that if you have uh, buy-in from the stakeholders on the ground and they all agree, gotcha. yes, we also wanna move in this direction. A lot of the work we've done at Gamers Outreach has been informed by that. I'm not a healthcare professional. Um, I'm a big video game enthusiast. I learned about the healthcare environment along the way. All of our programs at Gamers Outreach are the direct result of just spending time volunteering in hospitals, talking to hospital staff, understanding what their problems are, and then going back to the drawing board and thinking, oh, you know, as a gamer, how would I solve this? Let me try to come up with a solution and then I'll put together like a rough idea and then I'll go back to the hospital and say, hey, we've got this concept. If you don't like it, no hard feelings. Like we have a sense right. of humility about it. If you do like it, would you have interest in helping us test it? Like we would like to do the work to make this easy for you. So that simple definition, I think if someone can approach things with the right intent, that will make a world of difference. I've met so many folks, again, I think they mean well generally, um, but have, I mean, they've spent years of time, millions of dollars uh, proposing solutions to when they've wrongly defined the problem uh, mm -hmm. or they know the problem and they've wrongly defined the solution. Um, and it all just goes to waste. So, you know, there is definitely something to be said about taking the time to do the homework. If you're thinking about starting a nonprofit, my advice would be, hey, volunteer in, in the field first uh, to get that understanding. So you really know what the problems are. Yeah. Um, it's a lot easier to make an effective organization when you've like really worked with the people and gotten that direct feedback uh, than it is to just sort of blindly guess. Um, mm -hmm. So that's my sort of first piece of like big advice. Like, I think if you're going to tackle any sort of a major problem, um, it's kind of like building a product. It's the same thing. Like if you, if you have an idea for a product, um, you know, it's good to like build that. I do think there's some, some power in just building things. Like sometimes people don't know what they want and it's helpful to just say, yeah, the idea I have, let me create and put it into the world. Um, but what does become valuable is the feedback loop. Like once you create something, you can then hand it to folks yes. how they use it and then iterate on top of it. So that iteration is super key. Like, okay, cool. I built this thing. I think it's valuable. Oh, it's half valuable. Like people like this part mm -hmm. of it, let me like continue fixing and then not quitting. Like, uh, I mean, there've been plenty of time. I mean, if you were to rewind to look at our first gaming cart, there are a bunch of things that like were unnecessary with it because we were repurposing equipment and such. Uh, but now it's much more refined and all that has been through feedback. Um, so even when there are different times where the hospital's like, yeah, like we'd like this thing better. It's easy to be discouraged by some of that stuff, but you really actually need to take that and say, oh, wow, like they do have use for this. It's just not quite in the format they need it. So that would be, I think, a, 
an important thing to dwell on for anyone starting the nonprofit. I, I love that. And, you know, sometimes I, I'm constantly always thinking, and maybe this is the account in me, how can nonprofits, there's a lot of benefits for a nonprofit, not necessarily considering themselves like a for-profit business or like a typical business. But on the other hand, I feel like we could really benefit from adopting some of those principles, right? And when, when you were talking about designing something, getting feedback, remodeling, I, I just keep thinking of Apple, right? And Steve Jobs and coming out with Apple products and all the different iterations and all the different versions of things and all the different products based on sure on like research, you know, certainly listen to their consumers, like what works, what doesn't work, what do they want, what do they not want? And then ultimately getting to whatever devices we have now, right? And and how much of a following, almost like a cult-like following that Apple has, has uh, created over time. And how can nonprofits really do that? It's interesting because I've worked with nonprofits even before I started this firm. And I think what's interesting about what you said, I worked for nonprofits, like actually as an employee before I started this firm, knowing how hard it is in the trenches, getting the work done day in and day out. But interestingly, I don't know if I have seen a lot of cases, even when I worked for that one nonprofit, a lot of times we are responsive to the funders and what the funders want to see, but the end user or the end beneficiary, right? The Maybe the family or the children that we're helping or, I mean, pick anything, right? Um, whoever it is in the community, not really taking into consideration what do they want to see, what do they need, what, what other needs do they have that we're not addressing or that no one is addressing. I think that's really interesting. So I, I love that tip. You actually so, touched on, uh, real oh, quick, ahead. I want to build on that because you yeah. touched on something that I think is really important and not talked about often enough. We prioritize the people who benefit from our programs before we prioritize donors. So in yeah, our case, that. that means we answer to the hospitals and what they tell us is a no or a no-go for the patients and families they're supporting. Now, in some ways, we also, we sort of equalize that with the patients as well, because, um, you know, arguably our, our understanding is like, we want to provide video games to the patients and the hospital is sort of the conduit that is providing the healthcare along the way. And so mm -hmm. um, it's a, a, bit, a, bit, a bit of both for us. But the reason I say that is we've had times where donors will come forward and maybe they have certain expectations of do as donors, as a team, we've had a number of times where we've come back and forth internally, um, where we've had to remind ourselves, look, if a donor wants to do this, but the hospital says no, we need to respect the hospital and tell the donor, like, here's what's going to happen, you know? And so um, I think it really just comes down to honoring donor intent. Like when we tell mm -hmm. people for us, and this is, I think, important for the experimentation uh, topic you mentioned in the for-profit world and Apple and a lot of software companies, it's a lot easier to experiment because you have like you know, uh, unrestricted capital, like people bought something sure. from you because they wanted it. So now you've got money, you can do whatever you want with. In the nonprofit right. world, you're often recruiting donations and you're telling people, I want to take your money and do X with it. Um, and so I think as long as you tell people what it is you're going to do, and then you actually do that thing, that to me is the most important part. I could tell mm -hmm. people, hey, I want to find out how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And mm -hmm. if they want to find out too, they'll donate to that. And then we'll go sure. find out, right? Now, if I then took that money and like went on vacation and never found out what took, that's when it's a problem, right? That's when it's really right. an issue, right? I don't think people, right. if people want to find out how many licks it takes to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop, they'll, they'll, they'll be happy when you come back with the results. So honoring donor intent and then also being mindful of like, who is it we're really supporting? And then how do I balance mm -hmm. the expectations there? I think those are the keys that if you're a nonprofit and you want to experiment, by all means do it. You just have to, I think my my personal interpretation is you have to just make sure you're being super clear 
whether it's through a press release or social posts or direct mailings or whatever it is, what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So those are all the main questions I have. And now that everybody's had a chance to hear a little bit more about your story, how did you get into, um, because I love your story. You started this so young. I mean, you're, you're still young, but tell us a little bit about how Gamers Outreach got started. And then also for those of you that want to follow your story or follow Gamers Outreach, what's the best way to kind of stay in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, anyone can check us out, gamersoutreach.org. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active, at Gamers Outreach. Uh, same for Instagram and Facebook. You know, I started mm-hmm. Gamers Outreach as a high school student. Um, mm-hmm. Long story short, I got sick over my junior year of summer. Uh, I'd already been playing video games, but played way more video games during that time. I uh, got super good at a couple. Uh, I decided to ho- start organizing grassroots video game tournaments. And mm-hmm. uh, during one of my events, I uh, thought it'd be cool to donate the money from ticket sales to my local children's hospital. Um, and as an accident, kind of discovered the hospital was having a difficult time providing kids with access to bedside activities. Uh, so mm-hmm. I started taking money from my event, buying them video games. Uh, that led to building some very specific tools that helped the hospital manage video games. Right. And then I discovered that our neighboring hospital was having the same problem. And fast forward 14 mm-hmm. years, it turns out pretty much all hospitals are having the same problem. You've got mm-hmm. patients and families who are you know, spending uh, multiple days, sometimes many months in mm-hmm. these facilities. And um, for a variety of reasons, it's not an indictment on hospitals, for a variety of reasons, um, the experiences we all enjoy in our day-to-day lives don't translate as easily in the medical environment. And so sure. uh, our whole organization has been focused on trying to help make play easy to access and scalable in those hospitals. Um, and so, yeah, I never saw Gamers Outreach as being my full-time job. When I first started, it was just a passion project. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was organizing video game tournaments. I would take the money from my ticket sales. We would buy whatever we could for the local hospital after paying the expenses of our event. Um, and then mean, in the meantime, I was going to college. I was going, I actually was doing some contract work in the video game industry. So I did work, uh, I had a full-time job at this company called Coursera for a period of time. And then before that I was working for a marketing agency where I was helping to produce, uh, like video game competitions, um, for like, mm-hmm. you know, pretty big video game companies. Um, all that was helpful though, for the charity, it turned out in the, in the long run, yeah. all the work yeah. I was doing in the gaming industry was helping me build relationships with you know, these different people who, you know, work professionally in gaming. A lot of the reason we get the support we do from gamers is a byproduct of um, the involvement I had in the space, you know, professionally early on. So in that way, we uh, were a bit of a step ahead in terms of like having these organic relationships because we, like I said, legitimately came from, yeah, the space. Um, Anyway, at some point we basically started getting enough donations where it was constantly interrupting my full-time job. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> 2014, 2015. Uh, yeah, somebody tried, do- like as an example, somebody tried donating 900 Xbox consoles to us. Uh, so there's the semi-truck that was like trying to drop off these pallets. And at the time we'd already amassed like five or 6,000 video games in my parents' basement. I was using it as like mm-hmm. a, you know, a storage <laughs> area for like all this inventory we had accumulated. And uh, my parents were like, yeah, that's, when the semi truck showed up, they're like, "This is it. Like, you gotta. This has got to get out of the house. It's too much for us to, you know, facilitate here." Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I had was just finishing college. I had a full time job at this company, Corsair. They were flying me back and forth from Michigan uh, to their office in Fremont, California. And um, at that time, I had recruited a new board because I was noticing our increasing activity level, and I just kind of inherently felt like, you know, 
this is what I enjoy spending my time doing. Every time I do mm-hmm. something else, I just don't get that same sense of fulfillment. So selfishly for me, it was something that I, I enjoyed working on. I felt like as a gamer, this was a way for me to express my enthusiasm and excitement for games in a way that was making very tangibly a real world impact. Um, mm-hmm. And so I felt like it should continue on. And then of course, like it's obvious to me as a gamer as well, like the benefit games have for folks in hospitals. So I quit my job in 20, late 2014, early 2015. And interestingly, mm-hmm. 97% of the money we've raised as Gamers Outreach has come from, you know, has, has been generated in that period of time. So we were founded in wow. 2008, but it was, it's really been since 2015 to now that like the majority of our impact has really sort of blossomed. So um, yeah, it's helpful to, helpful to focus if you can. Well, and that's what I was going to say, because sometimes I think people realize there's going to be a trigger or a tipping point for which I will then be able to leave my job because the organization will have been able to, to grow to that level. But sometimes it's, we have to take the leap of faith, right? Um, and make this thing happen. Uh, yeah. And then the, the growth will, will go from there. And, and, you know, I'll mention too, I mean, I, I was fortunate that I at least get along with my parents. And so, I mean, that first year I did, I moved back home with my parents. Uh, my board was like, look, you know, at the time Gamers Outreach was busy enough that it was like, it was sucking up a lot of my time. Part of that was because I was not probably knowledgeable enough on how to properly allocate my time anyway. So there was that learning mm-hmm. curve through as like a new mm-hmm. founder. Um, but also frankly, uh, you know, Resource-wise, we were just at a point where, like, yeah, maybe the org could pay somebody, but it also might compromise, like, our ability to deliver on our programs. So mm-hmm. I was like, I was willing to say, yeah, I'll go home, I'll sleep in my twin bed in my parents' house <laughs> as a t- mid-twenty-year-old, and I'll work on this org um, as if it's my full-time job, and let's see where it goes. Um, now, if you're not in that position, I mean, I like I said, if you've got uh, other responsibilities. Um, it really just comes down to you have to figure out what works in your case. Uh, for me, I took yeah. advantage of the things that were in my environment. If you're in a situation where you've got a family or you need to pay bills, like, of course, like, I mean, taking that sure. risk might look different for you. Um, does it mean right. taking it alone? Maybe. Does it mean, you know, sticking with your job and then like just waking up early every single morning? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There was a period of time when I first moved to LA, I could barely afford being in LA. And actually a little known fact is I, I did end up uh, taking a job, we were investing in like our, um, we were making a pretty big investment in some gamers average programs when I first moved to Los Angeles in 2016. Um, and it was a little nerve wracking because we were seeing some cash flow swings because we had to invest in like the next stage of our growth. Uh, somebody in the gaming industry reached out and they're like, Hey, now that you're in LA, we got this marketing position at a company. Would you like to come join us? Uh, you can do both like work on your charity and that I was waking up at like four 30 or five in the morning and I would spend, wow. Uh, a few hours, and the good news, I was in LA, so my team's on the East Coast, right? I would spend a few hours getting them synced, trying to like get them moving, um, and then I'd go into the office, and I was doing the best I could, trying to balance the jobs, and then when I would get home, yeah. uh, I was back out at Gamers Hour, so I had no social, I mean, friends would invite me out for drinks, I was saying no. Um, yeah. I mean, I was literally just wake up, try to go to the gym, and then work, and that was it, and yeah. that was like a, a period of time that was probably the first six to eight months I was in LA. That's what happened. Now it worked out, thankfully. Um, yeah. And some people are against that. I mean, there's a lot of discussion. We were, I was just in a chat last night, people talking about like work hours and work-life balance. And I, I go back and forth about that. Every founder I've met doesn't seem to have work-life balance. Um, so I don't know if yeah. that's a, I don't know if that's a byproduct of like 
all of us are bad at managing time. Maybe that could be fair. Um, I think it's like, look, if you don't have established revenue streams, like you're in survival mode. Like the people who got off the mm -hmm. Mayflower when America was first started, they didn't have a choice. Like honestly, some of no. them died when they got off the boat. I mean, it was that that was the risk. And like sure. you had to build sure. shelter, you had to hunt for food. If those crops in your backyard didn't grow, you were screwed. Like that's what happened. Yeah. So I, I do think, <laughs> I think very practically, yeah. there, are, there are consequences for how we spend our time. And Sure. Um, you know, of course, like some people get lucky. Like if you are, if you go on vacation and you randomly meet a huge donor who gives you millions of dollars, like, I mean, that's luck. I mean, you're right place, right time. That can happen and does, of course. But um, for me personally, I, I think of it like an Olympic commitment. Like, look, when, if you're an Olympian mm -hmm. and you're training for the Olympics, you've got four years and then it's right. done. Like, look, you want to get that gold medal, train for four years, and then you can decide if you want to continue on afterwards. I think you just have to adopt that level of commitment and that's unpopular for some people and that's fine. It's not for everybody. That's fair. Sure. Um, sure. That's just how, that's personally how I see it. And uh, I don't expect that necessarily, I don't expect that same level of commitment from employees. You know, I feel like I, that's kind of the, the burden of being way. a founder. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's also why you get the benefits of being a founder, right. You get more freedom and right. decision-making for, for that reason. So um, anywho, long-winded answer to your question, a little bit of a tangent, but um, yeah, I think those are <laughs> I love that. How we've grown. Well, I love all of that because I think we, when we talk about with respect to being founders and for nonprofits, the reality is I know a lot of entrepreneurs. I, I know a lot of, um, of my colleagues started their own accounting firms. And now my firm has been around for about five years. And really within, it, it's funny you said four years because this last year, despite COVID, things got a little more normal around here. It got a little more sustainable. It got a little more of a balance but for four years, it was a grind. And I think that anyone that's trying to do anything big, whether it, you know, we use the word entrepreneur and oftentimes think of for-profit, but certainly, you know, for a nonprofit as a founder, you're really kind of an entrepreneurial spirit to even go in on this thing. And sometimes it does take like four years of extreme sacrifice to really reap all the benefits and be the, the, the level of success that you're looking for. So, so I love that four-year Olympic training. That's what I'll tell people, so. Yeah. Well, Zach, thank you so much again for all of the words of wisdom, all of your experiences that you've shared. I know this is going to be incredible for many people that are thinking about starting a nonprofit or feeling like they're maybe in a little bit of a hopeless place. And that's why I was really excited to share your story and, and all the really cool things that Gamers has done. So thank you again for being on. And for anybody that wants to um, check in on Zach, basically every social media outlet along with gamersoutreach.org, you can check out their website there and we'll have those links uh, also in the show notes there. So Thanks again, Zach. I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Tasha. Enjoyed it.